0: Your Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 19. While you're turning there, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever wanted something really badly? You wanted that new car, or you wanted that house, or you wanted to get married to her or to him. Or you just wanted to get married. You didn't really care that much about who it was. Later on, you wish you did. Or you wanted to have children, and they grew up to be teenagers, and you wonder why. I love having a teenager, just going on record there. Have You ever wanted something really badly? Maybe you wanted to get into a school, or maybe you... Wanted to be popular with some friends. Or maybe if you're a basketball fan, you wanted your team to win the big game. If you've been at Northside longer than I have, you probably knew Ralph Morris. Ralph Morris passed away last Sunday, about the time we were in here in worship. And Ralph Morris was a great servant of the Lord. Uh, Someone said, you've heard of the secret service. He was a secret servant. Did so many things behind the scenes, visiting people and taking them cassette tapes and all of those kind of things, reaching out to people who were in in need and people who were shut in, who couldn't get out. But as I met with the family and I prepared for his service, I found out some things that I didn't really know. One of those was this Ralph Morris was a passionate University of Kentucky basketball fan. Now he liked U of L okay, but he loved the Cats. In fact, one day, it's a true story, he was watching University of Kentucky play basketball. And Kentucky was winning, uh, but the other team was catching up. Thankfully, time was running out, but it wasn't going as quickly as Ralph Morris wanted it to. He was hoping that time would run out before the other team caught up. So he walks up to the TV set, and there's a game clock on there. And he starts tapping the game clock, trying to speed up the game. (laughs) You ever wanted something really badly? For decades... The Jews had longed for the Messiah to come. They were currently living under the oppressive political rule of Rome. Imagine that an enemy nation had taken over the United States of America. And they have soldiers posted at strategic places all over our country. And even in E Town, they have soldiers standing on the corner of Ring Road and the Dixie Highway. They have soldiers who are in charge of our soldiers now at Fort Knox. Can you imagine? And there is nothing that we could do about it. That's the situation the Jews find themselves in here in the first century in the New Testament. They are under an impressive government called Rome. And there's no way that they can see their ways out. But they're hoping that there might be someone, they've heard the prophets talk about them, that there might come someone someday to be the promised deliverer, the Messiah, who would free them, and they could be in charge of their own country, and even of the world one day. And they're hoping that maybe this one called Jesus from Nazareth is the one. In Luke chapter 19, we see people who are motivated. In fact, there have been up to 200,000 people lining the roadsides into Jerusalem, cheering an itinerant preacher from Nazareth. Wow, the excitement. They are hoping that this could be their promised deliverer from Rome. They had heard about the miracles. They had seen, if not seen, heard about Jesus healing the sick, making the lame to walk, giving sight to the blind, even raising the dead. And they'd heard about his teaching. Matthew 7, 28 and 29 tells us the crowds were amazed. They were astonished at his teaching because Jesus taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. No one ever taught like Jesus taught. When Jesus spoke, people were spellbound. They hung on the edges of their seat waiting for what Jesus would say next. In the city of Jerusalem, was bursting at the scenes with religious pilgrims there for the annual Passover festival. On one occasion, a census was taken of the number of lambs slain at the Passover feast. 256,000 were counted. There had to be a minimum of 10 people per lamb. Do the math, that's about 2.6 million people. Today, we're looking at Palm Sunday. Let's begin with the preparation, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Jesus' time is drawing near. In a matter of days, he would be arrested, given a mockery, a sham of a trial, and nailed to a cross for the sins of the world. Verse 29. As Jesus approached Bethphagia and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter into it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. What an unusual request. Why not a white horse instead of a donkey? Wouldn't that have been more impressive? Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a white horse, and the trumpet is sounding, and the people are cheering. Now, one day, Jesus will. Split the eastern sky on a white horse, and one day the trumpet will sound. But not yet. Jesus is coming in humility, riding on a donkey. But why? Let me give you a few reasons. Reason number one, to fulfill prophecy. In John's account of this same event, we find this sentence. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written. God had predicted this 500 years earlier in the book of Zechariah. If there is no other reason for Jesus to ride into town on a donkey than God had said it would be so, that would be reason enough. Just because God said so. God is a God of his word. He'll move heaven and earth if he has to in order to fulfill his word. Reason number two. It was a deliberate claim to be the Messiah. Zechariah 9.9 says... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Riding into town on a donkey was not only a fulfillment of prophecy, it was a deliberate claim to be the Messiah king. Was it the kind of Messiah king they were looking for? No, this was a different kind of deliverance and authority. That leads us to reason number three. It was a claim to be a particular kind of Messiah. Zechariah 9.9 goes on. The prophet writes, See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. Jesus Christ came as a Messiah who was gentle and approachable, full of grace and compassion and love. Jesus was talking to a people who harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd, to a people who were downtrodden under an oppressive Roman government and crushed in despair by their own people under the weight of religious legalistic system that sucked the energy out of their expectations, to a people who were oppressed by a religious establishment that was more concerned about personal power than honoring God or doing what was right or helping people who were hurting. It was to these people that Jesus came offering hope, he still is. He understands that life is hard. And people get tired. Sometimes it feel like quitting. Sometimes it feel like giving up. How many of you have ever felt like giving up? I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to go there anymore. I don't want to be around these people anymore. We all feel like that sometimes. But Jesus came to a people who were harassed helpless like sheep without a shepherd they're being oppressed by their own religious leaders along with the Roman government and Jesus says this to them Jesus says come unto me all you who labor are heavy laden and I will give you rest take a deep breath let it out and rest now don't go to sleep okay Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek, I am gentle and humble and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In New Testament days, the yoke was a handmade wooden collar. Custom fitted to each animal individually to prevent chafing as it did its work, pulling a wagon, or probably pulling a plow, and when Jesus said, "My yoke is easy," the idea here is that it fits well. It's tailor-made just for you. You are created for this. Ephesians two ten says, "You are God's workmanship." You could say His work of art. You're God's workmanship. His designed, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. You were made for what God has called you to do in this world. Like a Steph Curry shooting a three-pointer, or LeBron James going in for the big dunk, or a concert pianist playing on the stage at Carnegie Hall. You were created for what God has gifted and called you to do. And so we do it for his glory and for the good of others. Jesus has plans and purposes that are perfectly suited for you. Back to Luke chapter 19, in verse 31, Jesus says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them, the Lord needs it. In verse 32, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. Notice that Jesus knew exactly what the disciples needed and what they were going to face in advance. He still does. Do you believe that? He knows about that person who's going to be rude to you before you ever see them today. He knows what's going to happen at work before you ever leave your driveway. He knows, Terry, whether the fish are going to be biting or not when you go to the lake. He knows. He knows what your day is going to be like before your feet ever hit the floor. He knows exactly what you need before you ever even ask him. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. That's probably a good thing. Think about it. What if you knew that six months from now, you were going to be in a car accident? What would you be thinking about every single day from now till then? Car accident, right? Suppose you knew that tomorrow evening, you're going to be hammering a board, and you're going to be taking a swipe at a nail. You're going to hit it once, you're going to hit it twice, the third time, you're going to miss the nail, and you're going to hit your thumb so hard, it's going to hurt like the dickens. It's going to turn black and blue, and it's going to eventually come off that nail. Is How many of you be thinking about the sermon right now? You wouldn't, would you? You'd be thinking about that nail. How many of you think you would enjoy lunch this afternoon? You wouldn't enjoy lunch. You'd be thinking about that hammer is going to hit your thumb, and it's going to hurt, right? It's good that we don't know some things in advance. It's the old gospel song says, "Miss Jan, many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds the future. And praise God, I know. Who holds my hand? The great preacher C.H. Spurgeon once put it like this. We can't always understand the future. But when you can't trace God's hand, here's what you can do. You can trust his heart. Jesus is in charge of preparation. Preparation. But not only was there a preparation, there was a celebration. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, this colt. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As they went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Spreading cloaks on the road was a way of acknowledging the kingship of Jesus. Perhaps they remembered when Jehu was appointed king over Israel in the Old Testament, and the Israelites paved the way for him with their cloaks, and they hailed him as their king. The palm branches mentioned by John and the shouts Harken back a century and a half to the triumph of Maccabees and the overthrow of the brutal Antiochus Epiphanes, a horribly brutal ruler in their day. Here in Luke chapter 19, we have this amazing celebration. Lots of people, palm branches, cloaks, shouting, Praise to God, Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were celebrating, they had a passion and celebration, and so should we. Hear the words of the Psalms, the Old Testament hymn book. Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Do you feel the passion there? Psalm 100 says, Shout for joy to the Lord. When's the last time you shouted? Was it for joy? Was it to the Lord? Probably not. But the Old Testament psalm tells us, shout for joy to the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Say gladness with me with a smile on your face. Gladness. Come before his presence with singing. We did that today, did we not? Know ye that the Lord, he is God, and it is he that has made us, and not we ourselves. We have a lot to praise God about, do we not? Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, in all. Say the Lord all with me. All that is within me, bless his holy name. See, a lot of times when we praise God, we kind of do it half-heartedly, do we not? We kind of mumble through the words of this song, and we kind of listen to the sermon at the point where it's kind of interesting, then we kind of check out and something else comes up. But the Bible says that we should worship God with a passion. Amen? Psalm 122, verse 1, says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Psalm 84, verses 2 and 10 says, My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the living God. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Do you see the passion there? Psalm 150 says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You live in Kentucky. It's basketball season. NCAA tournament time. I sure wish Kentucky would have won. It would have made my illustration a whole lot better. I know John Calipari probably should have called a timeout, okay? Uh, I understand. You know, I, Hey, I live in Missouri. I don't have a lot of sympathy for you guys, okay? We finished last in the SEC two years in a row, okay? A little better this year. But the term March Madness, I'm most, most convinced it, it started in Kentucky, Okay? Kentucky fans are passionate about their basketball, and U of L fans aren't too far behind. Charles Barkley, how many of you know who Charles Barkley is? Famous basketball player, not known for just dishing out a lot of compliments. He said this about you, Kentucky fans. He says they're the best fans in all of college basketball. Sorry, U of L, but that's what he said. When Kentucky goes to play basketball in Atlanta, what do they call it? Catlanta, right? Question, when is the last time you got as excited about praising Jesus Christ as you did about shouting at a television when Kentucky was playing basketball? I didn't get a lot of amens on that one. (laughs) Not everybody was happy about the celebration here in Luke 19. Watch the denunciation, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, teacher, Rebuke your disciples. Make them stop, Jesus. I love the response of the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I don't know about you, but I don't want a bunch of rocks crying out in my place. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Somebody say glory to God. God. Somebody say hosanna. Somebody say praise the Lord. Like you mean it. Praise the Lord. I don't want a bunch of rocks crying out for me. How about you? I don't know if that's where the term for crying out loud came from or not, but I don't want rocks crying out of my place. We ought to praise our God. We ought to worship Jesus Christ. We should be excited because we have the privilege of knowing him, Amen. The Bible says God loves you so much he was willing to send Jesus Christ to this earth to die on the cross for your sin. That's something to get excited about, isn't it? Romans 5, 8 says God demonstrated his love for you and that while you were yet a sinner, Jesus Christ came to this earth and he died for you. He didn't wait for you to even think about attempting to get your act together. Jesus saw you there in your sin. He said, I'll die for you. That's something to be excited about, isn't it? 2 Corinthians five twenty one says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that good news? Are y'all awake this morning? Hello. Thank you, Terry. Anybody home today? Praise God. He is a good God, is he not? He is a loving God, is he not? And sometimes... We're a bunch of mess-ups, are we not? He doesn't stop loving you just because you blow it. He doesn't stop loving you just because you fail. He sees you there in your sin, and he says, I love you. I died for you. I've got life for you, eternal life, abundant life, filled with hope. But too often, what do we do? Oh, yeah, I guess I'll go to church today. I got nothing else to do. Oh, well I guess I go to church today, fish aren't biting, because I go to church today, it's rain outside. I can't play golf. You know what? It's a privilege to worship my God. How about yours? It's an honor and it's a privilege to worship Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Amen? We ought to celebrate today. Not just because we're supposed to, because it's 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. But we worship God because he's worthy to be worshipped. And he's been awfully good to you, has he not? Better than we can ever begin to understand. But it's not enough just to make a bunch of noise. You see, how passionate we appear in here... Is it best superficial Christianity and at worst blatant hypocrisy if it makes no difference in the way that we live out there? Amen? Too often the lives of Christians are like oxymorons. Now, I didn't call you morons today. I said oxymorons. Say oxymorons with me. Oxymorons. What in the world is an oxymoron? It's a contradiction in terms, okay? Let me give you some examples, like campaign promise, (laughs) government savings, politically correct, jumbo shrimp, clearly misunderstood. Here's the question. Is your life an oxymoron? Does what we talk about and sing about and pray about and preach about on Sunday really make a difference on the way that you live your lives on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday? Does what we do in here, in this place, really make a difference to the way that we live out there? Does what we do in this place really make a difference to the way that you live at your place, at your house, at your place of work, among your friends, You see, if it doesn't make a difference out there, then we're not really worshiping God in here. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a new person. You are a new person in Christ, okay? Reminds me of the time when uh, my little nephew, Matthew, not so little anymore, but then he was about two or three years old, and he sits on my mom's lap, on grandma's lap, and grandma's probably 65 years old at the time, and grandma looks at Matthew and says, you know, all these nice things that grandparents say, and Matthew looks at grandma and says, grandma, what are those lines on your face? <laughs> and grandma says, those lines are wrinkles. I'm getting old. Matthew looks at Grandma, looks back at himself, says, Grandma, I'm not old. I'm new. I'm brand new. You're a brand new person in Jesus Christ. Did you know that? I don't care how old you are. He has created you to have life abundant and eternal. And no matter what your sin, no matter how mildly you might think that you failed, No matter what your issue, what your struggle, what your problem, you are a new person in Christ. And when you give your sin, he takes it and moves it. As far as the east is away from the west, never to be remembered against you again. That's good news, is it not? That's how much he loves you. But he told us to let our light shine, that others may see our good deeds and praise our Father who is in heaven. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace but now is hidden from your eyes, my hope and prayer for you today is not that Jesus would be weeping over your life, but he would be celebrating as you walk with him, as you worship him, as you live for him in this world Sometimes it's difficult. Tony Cartledge said it like this. Too many enthusiastic followers got behind Jesus on the road to the cross, but they would not follow him. They got behind him on the road to the throne. They would not follow him on the road to the cross. You know, it's not hard to follow Jesus when your circumstances are good. It's not hard to follow Jesus when your health is good or we got lots of money in the bank, or you're popular with your friends. But when you lose your job, or you lose your health, or that dream that you had for so long is taken away, it's a little different then. But praise God, that's when we rise up and we're strengthened in our faith as we worship God, even in the hard places of life. I would encourage you to follow him, even now, whatever your circumstances, whatever your situation might be, to follow him today. You see, you have this opportunity called life. And it's not very long. It's just about like a snap of the finger compared to eternity. But what you do with this snap of the finger makes all the difference for eternity in the future. I close with this, Lou Gehrig was one of the greatest baseball players of all time. In fact, he's been ranked as a number two baseball player who ever played the game behind Babe Ruth. One day, Babe Ruth is already retired. Lou Gehrig is the man. And he's come up in this game situation, classic, Yankees are down by one run. Runners are in scoring position. And there's two outs. Lou Gehrig gets a hit. They win the game. If he doesn't, game's over. They lose. Lou Gehrig steps up to the plate, and everybody in the stadium knows Lou Gehrig's going to get a hit. So he stands up there and waits for the first pitch. When it's right by him, strike one, says the umpire. Fans say, okay, Lou's just waiting for his pitch. He'll be fine. He's going to smack that ball so hard they won't know what happened to him. Waits for the next pitch. Boom, strike two. He's still standing there. Everybody in the stands getting a little bit nervous now, but they know this is the great Lou Gehrig. He is the man. We know he's going to get a hit. We know he's going to win the game. Lou Gehrig digs back into the plate. Here comes the third pitch. Strike three, you're out. Lou Gehrig... Turns back and he looks at the umpire. Then he walks back to the dugout. Someone asked Lou Gehrig after the game, What did you say to that umpire? You know what he said? He said, I'd give $10,000 if I could have that pitch back. Let me tell you something. You have an amazing opportunity to follow Jesus Christ with all of your heart with all of your life. you only got one shot at this, there's only one shot to live your life for Jesus Christ. What will you do with it? By the grace of God and for the glory of God. You know, Easter Sunday is coming up next week. Did you know that? If there's ever been a better opportunity to share your faith or invite somebody to church than Easter Sunday, I don't know what it is. More people will come to church on Easter Sunday and hear the gospel than any other Sunday of the year. And you have neighbors and you have friends and you have people that you work with that you can invite to come. And some of you may need to nail it down for your own self. Do I know Jesus Christ as my Savior? Have I given my life to Him as my Lord? Do I really know where I'm going to spend eternity? If not, Today is your day. And others of you, maybe you've nailed that down. You're pretty certain of that. But if you're really honest, you're just kind of standing there watching pitch after pitch, opportunity after opportunity pass you by. And God has called you to follow him with every fiber of your being for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. So in just a moment, we'll all stand up. We'll sing a song, we'll pray, and this will be your opportunity to say yes to the Word of God and to the Holy Spirit, to say yes to Jesus Christ, privately there in a pew for many of you, publicly perhaps for some, whether to come to an altar area to pray, whether to come and say, God's leading me to join this church as a young couple did in our first service. But whether it's to give your heart to Jesus Christ, whatever God is saying to you today, won't you say yes to him?